Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the world of conspiracy theories, because we are all wired to believe misinformation to some degree, but not all to the same degree. So with help from Naomi Klein and other experts, discover why people are drawn to conspiracies, the psychology behind belief, and ideas about the best ways to prevent conspiratorial thinking. Sources today include The Guardian, Big Questions from Penguin Books UK, Legia Miller, Democracy Now!, the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, Speaking of Psychology, and a TED Talk with additional members-only clips from The Daily Show and the PBS NewsHour. If the question is, why do people believe conspiracy theories, the question you're really asking is, why do people believe anything? And the answer is, for a lot of reasons. There isn't just one factor. And it would be easy if we could pin it on one thing, like, oh, it was Twitter made everyone believe this, or they were dropped on their head, or they happen to fit a particular demographic, or they have some psychological problem. But that's not going to explain most beliefs for most people. My eyes have opened. And once they're open, believe me, what used to look normal seems insane. And now, King, don't you think, don't you think this has something to do with that? The reality is that we all share certain hardwired evolutionary traits that help us navigate the world. One such trait is how we verify information without direct personal experience. We only have a certain knowledge. Normally it's what's all around us. I know my Hyundai car, but I do not know another car. We've been in that situation where we'll step into a new car and then you can't release the handbrake because it's some strange setup. It's the same idea as in how we navigate the world. There's gaps in our knowledge that we have to fill. That knowledge that we bring in, it can be flawed. We readily assign truth to new information in part because so much of the information we receive is true and also because it's easier to process. But these useful shortcuts are vulnerable to being hijacked by misinformation. Studies have shown that when we are repeatedly exposed to a piece of false information, One. we become more likely to believe it. One. One. The subject denies the evidence of his own eyes and yields to group influence. One. We fall for repetition even when we know better. We see it months after exposure among intelligent people and even after we give strong warnings. This illusion of truth can have a powerful effect. It's really difficult to correct misconceptions once we accept them. The brain data suggests that myths are never erased, so we're concurrently storing both the original misinformation and its correction. That correction might fade from memory faster, and that leaves us with that original myth. They've done studies, you know, 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Humans are storytellers, and our tendency to create narratives and find patterns has served us well throughout history, allowing us to predict, react to, and change the world around us. Human beings crave logic. Human beings crave understanding. They need to know why something has happened. It makes total sense that we want to find patterns in our environment. The abnormal part is I see random patterns as meaningful in almost everything that I do. If I over rely on this strategy and seeking out information in my environment, or if I'm overconfident in this process, then I'm not gonna think to question it. The propensity to seek patterns in unrelated information can result in finding ominous meaning where there is none. But because the world is so complex and the sheer amount of information within it is infinite, random coincidences are not just likely, but inevitable. Though both useful and natural, these cognitive processes we all experience present a huge challenge to those attempting to stem the tide of misinformation and conspiracy theories. How do we communicate this to people, right? That entropy and randomness and disorder and chaos in a way that isn't going to push people away. And I don't think we have a good handle on that because 
we can be preachy, we can be overly complicated or just inaccessible. And a lot of people don't trust scientists to begin with. So I think we found ourselves in a very challenging place. We can't know everything. And so we have to trust that some people are sharing high quality information. And we definitely don't want people becoming so skeptical that they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Conspiracies do sometimes occur, but it's important to remember that those are typically revealed by investigative journalists or whistleblowers, not anonymous Reddit and 4chan users. I worry about the um, the way algorithms are changing us is just the currency of um, the attention economy, right? Of likes, of retweets. They're value-free measurements, right? In the same way that money is. And the, the question is not like, was this insightful? Was it correct? It's how many, how much, right? So that's sometimes referred to as clout online. And what clout measures is is not is it good? Is it bad? Is it true? Is it false? It's how much bulk you-ness there is in the world. I say in the book, like if influence sways, clout just squats. <laughs> and I think that what that does is it, if that's the currency of the online economy, it selects for a certain type of personality that really needs a lot of attention um, for whatever reason. The attention economy rewards the part of ourselves that wants the attention, that wants to see our name, that wants that validation. And it changes us. I think it does change us. I think we can all, we all know people who have been changed. I've been changed. I, I've watched it change my, you know, my, my, my research habits. The reason why I did this study of my doppelganger is I think she's emblematic of 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 something that's happening much more broadly in the culture, which is people are changing. You know, my, my doppelganger is very different than she used to be. And I know lots of people who have changed a lot. And everybody I talk to about this is like, oh, God, I can't talk to my uncle anymore. I can barely even talk to my sister. My grandmother won't get off Facebook. You know? So we, we're all having this experience of, of not just the world changing, but people we know and love changing and uh, seeming almost beyond the reach of, of love or reason. And so I thought it would be interesting to try to figure out, you know, what, what are the mechanisms that are, that are leading to this huge change? Conspiracies have been mainstream at, at, at various points in history. I don't think we are in entirely new uncharted territories. I think th that conspiracy theories play particular roles in our mental architecture and in our social relations. I and mean, the one thing that conspiracy theories do is distract us from, from unbearable reality. So a lot of my work um, has been about the climate crisis. And if I look at climate change denial, which is a conspiracy theory, right? The reason that conspiracy has gotten traction is a combination of the fact that there are very powerful vested interests in our society that don't want us to focus on the real causes of, of the warming because it would threaten their entire business model, that being the fossil fuel companies that have underwritten that conspiracy theory. But also just the reality that, you know, like Al Gore said back in the day, it is an inconvenient truth in that it does require change from us. It's always easier to f take a flight into fantasy than it is to confront a difficult reality. And so I think that COVID was also a difficult reality and it asked difficult things of us. We also live in a society that tends to turn to individual responses as opposed to more difficult collective responses, right? So our, our neoliberal governments were more likely to tell us to wear a mask and get vaccinated than they were to say, Let's make sure that every worker has sick leave, has enough money to stay home if they need to. Let's make sure that our kids go to schools with lots of great ventilations. These are all possible responses our governments could have had to COVID. And we st still would have needed to wear masks and get vaccinated. But they put everything onto those individual responses and really neglected those collective responses that would have made it easier Many people weren't supported by the programs that were supposed to support people to stay home, right? And so a lot of people chose 
fantasy and just chose to believe that COVID was a conspiracy. What's interesting about studying COVID conspiracy theories is that they're not really theories, like they're just uh, a range of plots most of which contradict each other, right? So one of them is COVID is a biological weapon developed in a lab by the Chinese in order to wipe out the West. Also, don't wear a mask, which is weird because if it's a biological weapon, you'd think you would take precautions. And then also the vaccines are a bioweapon, right? So it's just like, well, is it COVID that's the bioweapon or is it, it doesn't matter. It's just generally the moral of the story is you don't need to do anything. You don't need to stay home, don't need to wear the mask, you don't need to get vaccinated. Conspiracy theories get the facts wrong, but they often get the feelings right. And the feeling is something's being hidden from us. Something doesn't add up. Like, you know, there is impunity for the powerful. Rather than seeing a system, you know, and I'm somebody who's been studying the system of capitalism for my, you know, all through all of my books, that's really what they're all about. Conspiracy says, no, it's this, it's Fauci, it's Schwab, it's this meeting in Davos. And so this is <laughs> the other reason why conspiracies are threat are, are, are spreading now and becoming so mainstream. Even though conspiracy theorists always talk about the elites, the elites, they're after you. The people who conspiracy theories benefit most are the elites, <laughs> because it deflects attention away from the system that has made them billionaires. And it says, no, it's not the system. It's just those three guys. We just have to get those three guys. It's a system protecting framework, conspiracy theories. That's why uh, conspiracy theories are often play on racial and ethnic stereotypes, right? They break apart potential coalitions from below. While so many people purport to be concerned about the prevalence of fake news, relatively few indicate having ever seen or shared it. That math ain't mathin', friends. However, this is not an equal partisan split. Republicans who consider themselves further to the right tend to be much more likely to spread disinformation through social media sharing than Democrats who consider themselves farther to the left. A recent Politico study identified these individuals as low conscientiousness conservatives, or LCCs for short. These low conscientiousness conservatives are conservative and fall on the low end of conscientiousness, defined by the study as the tendency to regulate one's own behavior by being less impulsive and more orderly, diligent, and prudent. So there are low conscientiousness liberals, high conscientiousness liberals, high conscientiousness conservatives, and low conscientiousness conservatives. And of those four groups, low conscientiousness conservatives, or LCCs, were far more likely to believe in and share fake news and disinformation. The only factor that this study was able to determine as the reason for why LCCs were so much more likely to share fake news was their specific proclivity for chaos which the study defined as a motivation to disregard, disrupt, and take down existing social and political institutions as a means of asserting the dominance and superiority of one's own group. Indeed, multiple other studies have confirmed that conservatives have a lower ability to distinguish truths and falsehoods. This is due in part to the fact that a vast majority of the disinformation out there tends to reinforce conservative ideologies, while the corresponding truths tend to favor liberal viewpoints. But this can also be explained by the fact that conservatives tend to generally be less trusting of established institutions, news media, and democracy itself. And with the growth in partisan siloing, meaning the lives of Republicans and Democrats look vastly different, comes the growth in one very significant factor. Liberals tend to go to school for longer than conservatives. Education level is another factor that strongly predicts whether an individual is able to distinguish between fact and fiction. But this truth that liberals tend to be better educated than conservatives also reinforces another commonly held right-wing belief, that elites and academics are controlling the narrative and can't be trusted. And their distrust of academics and elites 
makes sense because partisanship has led to severe distrust in the other side because we've internalized our politics to the point of them becoming personal identifiers of morals and worldviews. And the vast majority of people in academic and research institutions are liberals because liberals are the ones obtaining higher education at a larger rate. So their distrust is self-reinforcing and also indicative of their ability to distinguish facts from fake news, leading to a self-perpetuating cycle that seems impossible to stop. How do you convince a group of people to believe facts when those facts were discovered by academics who tend on average to skew liberal and are therefore the enemy, and according to conservatives, probably bought out by Big Pharma or George Soros or something. On top of this, the past seven years have seen the accumulation of multiple different events that culminated in the perfect storm that led to January 6th and the stolen election conspiracy theory. Donald Trump was elected president in 2016, as if any of us could forget. And with his election came a president who was quick to share whatever information, whether true or false, furthered his cause or increased his power. We also had a president with an unprecedented connection to the news media, specifically Fox News, and fringe far-right newspapers and fake news creators like Steve Bannon. A president who regularly called in to Fox and Friends and made wild statements that had no basis in fact or reality, knowing that Fox had a direct line to his base and would do very little to fact check him or really stop him from doing and saying whatever he wanted. Add to that a global pandemic, which left people feeling isolated, afraid, confused, and looking for answers. And we have a perfect storm wherein disinformation can spread. And we saw this first with the pandemic itself, leading to what the CDC termed an infodemic, where so much information is available and being spread online that it crowds out the information that the experts in the field are trying to communicate to the public, leading to widespread distrust in the authorities and experts and causing people to do drastic and risky things because of that fear and distrust. So you have people injecting themselves with bleach and horse medicine because there's just so much disinformation floating around that the actual truth seems wrong to them, especially because the type of person willing to believe that ingesting bleach is medically a good idea is also probably somebody who's a conservative with a low conscientiousness and a proclivity for chaos, making them the perfect consumer and purveyor of fake news. Along with this infodemic and the election of Donald Trump, arguably the most populist politician who's ever taken the White House, you have a general erosion of public trust in democracy itself. Plus, the very point of populism and a populist politician is to have followers of the populist politician, in this case Donald Trump, believe in the strength and truth of that central person at the expense of belief in the system. Studies have shown that populism erodes democracy by requiring belief in the person or the nation, not based around specific issues or communities, but based around an organic, undefined version of the nation state. Like, make America great again. How? It's unclear, but if you don't believe in that statement, can you really call yourself a true American? A true patriot? Because another way that populism thrives is through the unquestioning adherence to belief in that nation and in that person, so that if you are not with us, then you're against us. Populist leaders further erode trust in democracy by questioning the establishment, the media, and the elites, a theme we've already talked about, and that was the central touchstone of the Trump presidency. According to Stanford's Global Populisms Project, among most dangerous of populism's consequences is the erosion of formal democratic rules and liberal institutions. These destructive effects of populist rule include the takeover and taming of courts and oversight institutions, and new laws that limit the freedom of the media and civil society. These legal and formal maneuvers erode public criticism, transparency, and accountability. Just as importantly, however, such governments have also made a point of undermining informal democratic norms, such as conflict of interest laws, financial transparency, or respect for opposition. Here, the damage may go deeper and be far less reversible. Such norms and informal rules are the product of decades of elite and popular interactions. Once such trust and consensus disappears, it is not easy to bring it back. And with all of this, the Trump presidency and the chaos of the pandemic, the election denial and eventual January 6th insurrection becomes a very clear and obvious outcome. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. I think we all know people who have changed. 
dramatically in the past few years, um, you know, who don't really seem like themselves. I, you know, I think it's less interesting that Naomi Wolf is a seemingly a doppelganger for me for a lot of to a lot of people's eyes um, than that she seems to be a doppelganger of her former self. Right. That she was a prominent feminist. Um, she was involved in progressive movements. And now here she is on Steve Bannon's uh, a podcast in some cases, every single day, like there have been weeks where she has been a guest every single day that he has been broadcasting. I think probably Democracy Now! listeners would be surprised to learn that they published a book together. Um, they put out T-shirts together. So, she, you know, her role on Steve, in Steve Bannon's media sphere is almost uh, like a co-host more than a guest. She's a really important figure in this world. But part of the reason we don't know this has to do with this, uh, what I call the, the mirror world and the fact that while they see us, we have chosen, for the most part, not to see them. And I think that that's very dangerous because these are really important political movements. Steve Bannon is a, is a very able political strategist. He got Donald Trump elected once, and he fully intends to do it again. And part of Steve Bannon's strategy is that he is very good at looking at issues and people who have been abandoned by the Democratic Party, or even by the left, people who have been mistreated, um, ejected, and saying, come on over to this side, come on over to this side of the glass, and we'll take a little bit of truth, you know, you use that quote, that, that, that there's always a little bit of truth mixed in, and we'll mix it up with all of these dangerous lies. Um, but to me, as a lifelong leftist, what concerns me about that is that many of the issues that they are um, co-opting and twisting are issues that I think the left should be more vocal about. You know, I had one of my most, um, you know, I'd say like a moment in my in the research where I was listening to hundreds of hours of Bannon's podcast, where I would say I felt most destabilized was when I would hear Bannon um, cut together a montage, an audio montage and a video montage uh, um, of intros and outros of major cable news shows on CNN and MSNBC brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Moderna. And, you know, his point was to say, you can't trust these corporate media outlets because they are bought and paid for by the drug companies that are trying to get you vaccinated, right? Um, but for me, what was what was chilling about that was that it, that was a doppelganger of the kind of media education that I grew up in. You know, we all read Manufacturing Consent. We had these charts where we, and I mean, Amy, they sounded a little bit like you. They sounded like me. They sounded like Noam Chomsky, except through a warped mirror. And what worried me about that is it really reminded me that I don't think we're doing that kind of, um, of, of systems-based media education anymore, where we really are looking at these ownership structures. And if that doesn't happen, then it's going to be co-opted in the mirror world. So, you know, I guess, uh, Nermeen, thank you for your kind words about the book. I'm so glad that it resonated with you. It was a sort of a risk. Um, but I think maybe by being specific, you know, we're all thinking about the people in our lives and, and, and this phenomenon that's, that's affected us all. I think w when I look at people who have made this a similar political mi migration from, from liberalism or leftism over to the Bannon-esque right, I think we often see um, some uh, economic forces at work. We, Naomi Wolf has has quadrupled her following because of this this uh, um, decision, this political decision of hers. Um, she's not the only one. You know, I'm, I'm sure people are thinking of other people. It's actually a really smart business move, um, and and this is happening within an economic system that has monetized attention. Um, uh, you know, people are trying to build their personal brands because they've been told that they're not going to get a job, that this is the only way they can survive in these roiling capitalist seas. And there, there are a lot of there's a lot of clicks over there. Um, so I think that's some of it. Um, you know, what are the other forces that get mag magnified? Well, you know, this is a little tricky to say because, you know, I, I do write, I, you know, this I don't think it, this gives people a pass. Um, but but Wolf is one of these people who has experienced a lot of of shaming and uh, kind of pylons uh, on on left Twitter, liberal Twitter, or X or whatever it's called. She's really been, I would say, internet bullied. Um, people can say, okay, well, for good reason, she's made all of she's she's spread conspiracies. She's made major factual errors in her books, but I don't think that's necessarily a justification for for cruelty. Um, 
So I think that's something else that gets magnified because I think when people have an experience that is very, very negative in left or liberal circles where they really get treated almost like they're, 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 they're not human. And that's partly because they're performing themselves as a brand, which is saying, you know, hey, I'm out here, I'm a commodity, I'm a thing. And then people start thinking, well, if you're a thing, I can throw things at you and you won't bleed. Um, you know, I think that that's part of what is magnified here, and that becomes a justification for, I think, an unjustifiable political alliance with extremely dangerous figures who are building a network of far-right political parties who take issues like rightful suspicion of big pharma, rightful anger at big tech, rightful anger at the elites, and flip it to transphobia, xenophobia, racism, you know, and here I'm thinking about figures like Georgia Malone, who is, you know, a protege of Steve Bannon's. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, like, how journalists can cover conspiracy theories better. Like, what, sh- what should we be doing? I think that journalists have such an important platform. And so you can educate people about the dangers of, of misinformation and disinformation. You can speak about the fact that there are people who will try to take advantage of you. There are people that will try to lie to you because they make a profit from it. People need to understand why and how this is happening. They need to understand that there's profit to be made and there's weaponization that is to be made. No one wants to play the fool. No one wants to be an ex-cult member and no one wants to admit that they've been had. And so if we do it up front and teach people about how to recognize, like what, what you were talking about, Abby, is, is that journalists can do a better job of that, of educating the public about psychological manipulation, really. Abby? Yeah, I think that journalists um, are doing much better than they were a couple years ago when we had a huge amplification problem um, and they were writing and covering about conspiracy theories and, and hate groups in ways that just gave them more oxygen than they needed. And that was often coming from white journalists as well who have the privilege of not feeling as threatened um, by those those groups and those beliefs and ideologies. Uh, I think that that has gotten a bit better, but there's still room for improvement there when it comes to how we give attention to hateful narratives and hateful people and groups. You know, to that point, um, you know, often, not always, newsrooms don't represent uh, the communities that they're meant to serve, right? Uh, we saw during uh, COVID-19 pandemic kind of a group think, right, for that lack of diversity saying Tuskegee could be a reason not to get vaccinated. But in reality, when you're talking to people, a distrust of, um, you know, the vaccines, how quick, how quickly they were formulated, right? A distrust of, you know, one type of vaccine in a different community. Access. At, at a time, there was, you know, people going from other communities and taking up all the vaccine appointments or a time you could get off of work to go and get a vaccine or a time you could go across town in a bus to get a vaccine. That doesn't mean people don't want to be vaccinated and and to draw on something like conspiracy, uh, like uh, Tuskegee, which was a, a very large trauma for black folks, it still wasn't right. Right. And that's that lack of diversity showing up and that will show up with other things that emerge. So I think that diversity is really important. If you don't have it in your newsroom, there's advocates, as I mentioned, working on the ground who can let you know what's truly happening. And trusted voices again. Bring on the trusted voices onto your news shows. Bring on the people that the community trusts and hear their voices more. Yeah. And one of the benefits, too, of just including more diverse voices in journalism um, is that when it comes to covering conspiracy theories, you also don't want to just say this is this is fake. Like that should not be the end of the coverage. Um, and I think that when we look at how we should be understanding the world, it should be through that framework of like ecological literacy. Like how not just like is this conspiracy true or not, but also like what purpose is it serving? Yes. Why does it exist? Um, you know what 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 sorts of power structures is is it upholding? 
My friends over at The New Republic have a podcast. It's The Politics of Everything, and it explores the intersection of culture, politics, and media in bi-weekly interviews with scholars and journalists. The show's hosts are TNR literary editor Laura Marsh and contributing writer Alex Perrine. And a recent episode of theirs is particularly of interest to me. It's titled Welcome to the Anti-Woke Economy, and it dives into the world of explicitly right-wing alternatives to everything everyday products. This is something that we've been discussing on the bonus show for members recently, and it is really fascinating. They discuss this relatively new phenomenon in the important context of the right seemingly falling out of love with big business, which is a big change that may be marking a tectonic shift in our political landscape. So it's definitely worth paying attention to. You can find The Politics of Everything wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to talk to you about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, In July, the Democratic presidential candidate spoke at a press event in New York City and claimed the COVID-19 vaccine is a genetically engineered bioweapon that may have been ethnically targeted to spare people who are Jewish, Ashkenazi Jews, and Chinese. COVID-19, there's an argument that it is ethnically COVID-19 attacks certain races um, disproportionately. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. So that's Robert Kennedy. Naomi, you wrote an article before these comments in The Guardian headlined, Beware, We Ignore Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s Candidacy at Our Peril. Um, Now, you write extensively uh, in this piece about his background. It was not just COVID-19 vaccines he was concerned about. He goes way back in his anti-vax attitudes and activism. Talk about the significance of this and what you continually say throughout the book in that we ignore these views at our own peril. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, in a way, uh, he is a doppelganger of his father and uncle, and he's sort of, it's sort of, I see it as a, a kind of a counterfeit politics. Uh, I'm sorry for RFK Jr. supporters uh, who are listening. Don't know how many there are. Um, I think that what he is doing is tapping into a, a lot of um, real uh, fears, angers, uh, you know, there are times when I listen to him when I'm, I can't help nodding along when he's talking about regulatory capture of, of, of government agencies um, by the corporations they're supposed to be regulating. That's something I've covered for a long time. Um, you know, or when he's talking about the military-industrial complex, I think it's really important. The reason why I call it, you know, a counterfeit politics is that although he is calling this out, if you look at what he's running on, um, you know, this is not Bernie. He is not actually running on a platform of, of significant regulations that would address the crises that he is talking about. Um, it's kind of a libertarian platform. I mean, he ha- isn't even running on universal public health care. Um, you know, if you're worried about uh, if you're worried about big pharma and profiteering, you know, how about running on pharma care that, that 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 we shouldn't be leaving life saving drugs to the market? But you'll never hear him say something like that. Um, you know, so I think to, for 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 leftists who are frustrated with the centrism of the Democrats, uh, it can seem like this is really an alternative, and I would really, really caution against it. Um, and, and look at what he is actually running on. Is he running on raising the minimum wage? And, and it, No, he's not. Um, he's tapping into these, uh, the, these real critiques um, and these real issues, like an inflated military budget, but then, you know, his position on Israel, for instance, is just more militarism. Same thing with Steve Bannon, by the way. You know, he talks a great game about the military-industrial complex. He's absolutely obsessed with China and positioning the U.S. for, you know, at the Third World War with China. If you're a serious critic of the military-industrial complex, you wouldn't be uh, as focused as Steve Bannon is on, 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 on China bashing. Um, so— uh, you know, RFK, uh, obviously, with that clip that you played, is uh, it was extraordinarily um, disturbing, dangerous. A lot of conspiracy culture starts ending 
up in this uh, kind of anti-Semitic territory, though it's the oldest conspiracy theory in the world. You know, what I make the I make the argument in the book that part of what we're dealing with um, with the rise of conspiracy culture, and I call it conspiracy culture, not conspiracy theories, because the the, the theories so wildly. Uh, um, contradict each other. It's just a posture of mistrust and just throwing wild theories at the wall. So one minute COVID is a bioweapon, perhaps, and the next minute it's just a cold, so don't even wear a mask. You really would need to choose if you had a theory between whether or not it was a bioweapon or whether or not it was a cold. If it were a bioweapon, presumably you would want to do pretty much anything you can not to be infected. Um, But they never attempt to resolve these glaring contradictions because the point of it is to throw up this kind of a, a, a distraction so that we aren't focused on the, the sort of what I would describe as kind of the conspiracies in plain view, the fact that the, that the pharmaceutical companies uh, um, turned COVID into this profit center, uh, the fact that these, the, the, despite the fact that so the vaccine de- development was funded with public dollars, all the initial orders were, were from the government there are these outrageous patents on uh, on these vaccines, and they should never have been patented in the first place. Um, and I think we need to be really wary of, of being overly credulous. Uh, we know that there are real conspiracies in the world. You've been covering the 50th anniversary of the overthrow of Salvador Allende. Um, and new documents come out uh, every week that, that show us these you know, behind-the-scenes meetings. But if we look at that conspiracy, it's a good example. You know, what you see in the documents uh, about the U.S. destabilization campaign of Salvador Allende, it wasn't that there was a, it wasn't that, you know, there was some nefarious goal about depopulating the earth or draining kids of adrenochrome or whatever the conspiracy culture is claiming. Um, it was to protect U.S. copper interests, you know, U.S. telecom interests. It was just capitalism doing its thing. Um, and sometimes it takes to, a plot to do it, uh, is the way I put it in the book. But coming back to what I was saying earlier about the, the, an absence of basic political education, if people don't understand how capitalism works, if we don't understand that this is a system that is, that is really an, uh, um, built to consolidate wealth, um, and it, it will always have a massive underclass. And instead, people have been told that capitalism is just, you know, Big Macs and freedom and rainbows and everybody getting what they deserve. Then when that system fails them, they're going to be very vulnerable to somebody going, oh, it's all a plot by the Jews or, you know, whatever the conspiracy of the day is. And that's why doing that basic political education and economic education is so critical because it's really our, uh, you know, it's our armor against this conspiracy culture. Is there any way to to effectively debunk a conspiracy theory once it's out there? I mean, can you just present the facts? Mm-hmm. Like you talked about um, the anti-vaxxers, um, you know, the fact that the the Lancet article that kind of led to a lot of beliefs that um, children were, were um, becoming autistic as a result of, of vaccines, and then it turned out that 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 article was was bogus it was it was based on faulty data and it was retracted and yet some people are still hanging on to that so is there a way to to stop these theories from from continuing to swirl yes there there are ways to do this but of course it's extremely challenging it's very very difficult once once these conspiracy theories are out there and people believe them then sometimes people can very very strongly hold on to these beliefs and defend them um, very, very strongly as well. And once these attitudes are very, very strong, of course, um, from other areas of psychology, we know that attitudes that are very strongly held are difficult to um, dispute, I guess, difficult to, difficult to change. It's very difficult to change these sorts of attitudes. Um, and so, yes, it is a challenge, but there are things that, that can be done and um, a lot of research that, especially in, in very, very recent years as well, is, has started to come out um, in terms of how do, you, how do you address misinformation, how do you address conspiracy theories and giving people the facts does work um, under, certain, under certain situations. In some of our own research, we've actually found that um, it's a... Uh, 
quite effective to provide people with factual information, provide people with the facts, and this is this was particularly about vaccines, um, before they're exposed to conspiracy theories and then the conspiracy theory sort of fails to gain traction. But once the people have been exposed to the conspiracy theory, then giving them misinformation, giving them the, I guess, sorry, the um, appropriate or correct information afterwards doesn't really work. So um, others have sort of taken this information and have started to look at ways to inoculate people against misinformation and to inoculate people against conspiracy theories and fake news and all sorts of other things, um, which seems to be working as well. So. Uh, in other words, you give people either the correct information or some piece of weak misinformation before they're exposed to the, the worst of it, then that helps them to be able to resist it. Um, there are other techniques that people have used, that researchers have used as well. And um, just to give you one other example, some researchers have looked at the idea of presenting people with a pre-warning or a forewarning that they might be exposed to misinformation. And if people believe that information that they might receive could be misleading and they have that information up front, then that can sometimes help them to resist the misinformation as well. Now, I think these these are all really, really valuable tools. But, of course, um, sometimes the misinformation is already out there. Um, so it's difficult to get to people beforehand so then you have to resort to, I guess, traditional debunking techniques such as going in with consistent, strong um, counter arguments. But I think that these other opportunities, these other um, techniques provide real opportunities to help people to resist conspiracy theories in general that they might come across in the future. So if you give people these sorts of, I guess, ways to critically think about information and um, and think, well, you know, okay, I could be exposed to misinformation, that misinformation is out there, so I'm going to be on the lookout for it, then it might actually help people to resist it when they come across it next time, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like the techniques that they're trying to use right now with the COVID-19 vaccines, you know, telling people up front that, you know, if you happen to be particularly allergic, you might have a reaction, this is what to expect. And yet it's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole because they talk about all of this and they're trying to be as transparent as possible. And yet along comes somebody who says that the mRNA that's involved in, in this is actually going to change the DNA in your body. And so, you know, how, how do you fight that? Yeah, it's very, very, it is very, very difficult. And there are new conspiracy theories all the time. Um, it's, it, it is, it is exactly like that game. <laughs> yeah. You're constantly trying to, you've got one and then you're constantly trying to hit another one away. It's, it is very, very challenging. It's, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot out there, a lot going on out there. And of course, this is all complicated by the fact that sometimes conspiracies do exist. And sometimes people may have deep-seated valid reasons to distrust authority. So for example, public opinion polls have found that Black Americans are less likely to say they'll take the COVID vaccine and more wary of its safety because they have a long history of being abused and mistreated by the medical establishment. So is there a way for people to balance this awareness with a healthy skepticism of conspiracy theories? Mm. Yes, again, this is extremely challenging. And you're absolutely right that um, some people have very good reasons to be suspicious of, of, of these sorts of things because of past events. And, um, and so the challenge becomes even greater. And so, and I don't know the solution to this apart from the fact that people who are attempting to fight the misinformation will need to be sensitive to these concerns and, and perhaps be more targeted in um, their efforts to debunk the misinformation, being sensitive to these, these historical events as well. Um, so it can't necessarily be a one-size-fits-all approach to misinformation. I do not actually believe that birds are robots. And everyone else in this picture is also in on the bit. This is a character that I played for four years, the leader of a fake movement with fake evidence, 
and a fake history. Our goal was to convince the public that our satirical movement was a real one and to see if the media would believe what we were saying. To do this, I played this character that I just showed you. Uh, we held rallies, put up billboards. We even sent the media a lot of fake evidence. We hired an old actor to pose as an ex-CIA agent confessing to his crimes. Uh, we sent them a historic email leak called Poultrygate that came out of the Pentagon. <laughs> where we forged hundreds of fake emails uh, exposing elites and government officials in the, in the bird drone surveillance plot. It didn't take much to convince the media. Uh, after just one summer holding rallies like this, it became nationally syndicated news on tons of local news stations that we were a real movement that had been around for 50 years. And there was, a, there was a resurgence happening where it was coming back, and there was a radical new leader myself, uh, bringing the movement back as the rise of conspiracy theories swept the nation. At this point, I'm sitting on my couch, watching the media report on my fake movement as a real one, and figured it was probably time to come out of character. One, because we'd accomplished what we came there to do, uh, but also, I didn't want this to snowball into anything it was never supposed to. So, in 2021, I broke character, revealed the movement was a farce uh, on the front page of the New York Times. And... I was very proud, as you can see. Allow me to reintroduce myself one more time. Uh, hi, I'm Peter. Can you say hi, Peter? Hi, Peter. Hey. Uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in Arkansas, in Little Rock, where I was homeschooled on the outskirts of town. The community that I grew up with was hyper-conservative and religious, and almost everyone that I knew believed in some form of conspiracy theory, whether it was that Obama was the Antichrist, or that there are microchips in the vaccines. During my entire life, I always felt like I was on the fringes of normal society. Uh, so, as you can imagine, when it became time for me to play a character, the conspiracy theorist was a pretty easy one for me to tap into. During the years in character, I used the same cadence, logic, and arguments as those I grew, I grew up around, just with a different theory swapped in. I was really dedicated to playing this character as convincingly as I could, as method as possible. So I spent days sometimes in character, a lot of time out in public with the van there, just talking with strangers. It led to hundreds of interactions with strangers who thought that I was a real conspiracy theorist. I'd often be out there, cowboy hat on, handing out flyers that said things like, uh, like, if it flies, it spies. Um, <laughs> We had another flyer that said, birdwatching goes both ways. Uh, <laughs> and during these times, as I'm handing out flyers and talking with people, there were hundreds, maybe thousands of instances over the years where strangers would approach me. You know, they'd see me in public, and I'd see them notice me. They'd walk up to me with complete disdain on their face. They thought that I was a real conspiracy theorist. And time and time again, they'd come up to me, look me right in the eyes, just as close as I am to you right here. And uh, it would tell me how stupid I am. It would tell me I was uneducated, that I was crazy, that I was the problem with this country. When this happened, I didn't feel the emotions of the character that I thought I would. My out-of-character self may interpret these interactions as a funny response to someone that fell for the comedy project, but... Instead, I felt the emotions of the character. I felt emboldened, and I felt sad and angry, like they didn't even take the time to know me. Uh, they instantly condemned me, judged me, and othered me. I'd found myself on the opposite side of this equation that I'd grown up around, the normal and the fringe. And in those moments when those people were talking to me, they could not have been more ineffective at what I would assume they really want. Less conspiracy theorists in the world. These experiences, hundreds of them over the years, watching how people interact with those on the fringes of our society, gave me an entirely new perspective on our approach to conspiracy theorists, whether it's how we frame them in the conventional media to how we deal with those in our own lives. 
If our goal is to live in a shared reality with our neighbors, what if our current approach isn't bringing us any closer to that? What if by talking to conspiracy theorists like they're ignorant and stupid, we're actually pushing them farther away from the truth that we want them to see? Because what happens when someone tells you that you're stupid, you're all wrong, you're the problem? You'll feel judged and dismissed, and most importantly, you'll feel othered, which may lead you to look for safety in those who are like-minded to do what they have been doing for you, affirm your selfhood, give you a sense of identity, belonging. These are some of the most basic human desires. We have to consider that conspiracy theorists are not just joining these groups for no reason. They're getting rewards out of these, things that we are all looking for, a sense of purpose, community. I grew up with the internet, and during my time with this project, especially out of character, people have talked to me about the misinformation age and this you know, terrifying problem of online echo chambers and conspiracy theorists, but I want to remind us that there are humans behind a lot of these Screens, uh, it's not, not just numbers. Everyone's unique experience influences their own narrative about the world. And there's no blueprint for how to deal with this yet. But I do not think that online echo chambers of conspiracy theorists are this inevitable symptom of life online. The internet is about 30 years old and things are changing quickly. And I think it'll be very important that we develop new solutions for these new problems on a fundamental level. What if by addressing belief before belonging, we're starting the conversation at the wrong place? Instead of sitting in collective bewilderment and frustration about how these people could believe these things, these crazies, what if we first looked under the hood and thought about what made them vulnerable to this information in the first place? What might they be getting out of this that they're not getting in their everyday lives? How much does it have to do with a different truth Or how much does it have to do with the community that that truth brings? We need to think about people's circumstances and reference points to see them as fellow human beings who want to believe in something and want to belong, just like all of us do in this room. Because if we continue with our current approach of arguing on the level of belief, it's not going to get us anywhere. We're going to end up with more echo chambers, more disinformation, and more polarization. Instead, we can do the harder work of looking into what is fueling the need for an alternate truth. Not only would this lend us more empathy for those who think differently than us, but I really think this might be the only actually productive means, productive means of moving toward the shared reality that we all want to live in. Let's direct our energy toward the crisis of belonging, and then maybe we will understand the crisis of belief. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Guardian explaining why we are all wired to believe misinformation. Big Questions spoke with Naomi Klein about how conspiracy theories obscure the real issue of capitalism. Leija Miller broke down who is most susceptible to conspiratorial thinking. Democracy Now! in two parts spoke with Naomi Klein about the dynamics of conspiracy. The University of Chicago Institute of Politics discussed the role of journalism in spreading misinformation. Speaking of psychology explained why prevention is the best solution to counteracting conspiracies, and we heard a TED Talk about a social experiment involving a fake conspiracy about birds not being real. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard two additional bonus clips, the first from The Daily Show discussing the relationship between conspiracies and military militias, and the PBS NewsHour, which featured a story of a woman who managed to pull herself out of conspiratorial thinking. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. 
And now additional episodes of Best of the Left you may want to check out related to today's topic include number 1371, Why Even Seemingly Normal People Are Falling for the QAnon Conspiracy Cult. That's from October 2020, which obviously focuses more on the pro-Trump conspiracy cult of QAnon, explaining what it is and why so many people are getting sucked into it. And then also number 1443, Legacies of 9-11, War on Terror, Islamophobia, and Conspiracy Theories from September 2021, which looks at the parallel legacies of 9-11, including the War on Terror, which ushered in the adoption of ever-wilder conspiracy theories and the acceleration of the political divide in America. Definitely worth checking out. Those two, again, are number 1337 and 1443. Now, to wrap up, I must say I'm pretty amused at one of the bonus clips we just played for members. If you didn't hear it, the way the woman managed to snap out of her conspiratorial thinking was to have someone she trusted suggest that the Earth was flat, which made her think, wait a second, am I thinking along the same lines as someone who believes the Earth is flat? I'd better look up how to debunk conspiracy theories. Which is presented as a positive and hopeful story about how people actually can recover from conspiratorial thinking, but I can't help but be disheartened by it because, obviously, the answer to the problem of conspiratorial thinking is not to present conspiracists with the wildest, dumbest possible theory in the hope that they think, now wait a second, that's ridiculous. Is that the kind of stuff I'm thinking of? I should really look into some countervailing narratives, right? Because that obviously doesn't work most of the time. They're, they're actually more likely to just add your ridiculous theory to their long list of things to consider. So it's a nice story, sure, but not one that's particularly helpful. Which brings me to the real issue of conspiratorial thinking that's important to understand. Well, maybe a couple of them. The first is that conspiratorial thinking is based on making connections, and making connections is something that's actually really important. In fact, for an example, you only have to go to the final comments of my very last episode, in which I talk all about making the connections and recognizing the patterns as it relates to how capitalism responds to disasters with Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and then the fires on Maui. So, being able to recognize patterns is actually extremely important to understanding the world. Conspiratorial thinking is that same very healthy instinct turned up just a little bit too high, but not just too high. And this is the second piece that's important to understand. It's not just that it's a good and healthy thought turned up to like a too high of a sensitivity level. The people who fall into conspiracies also usually come with the wrong framework of how the world generally works. Now, the framework that I subscribe to is one of structural forces that are influenced by individuals, but can take paths that no individual particularly planned on it taking. The other framework lacks a structural understanding and sees the world only through the actions of individuals. Then, if something terrible happens, you know, particularly something that actually is the fault of people and not just a natural disaster, and you see the world through individual actions only, then it's all too easy to conclude that everyone's actions are actually intentional and that the terrible thing was brought about by people's actions intentionally. And this is why it's so important to understand the connection with capitalism, as was described in the show today. To take a recent example, when the safety of the community was at odds with the profitability of the electric company on Maui, the executives were faced with a decision between competing incentives. They may have genuinely wanted to do their best to protect the community by upgrading their equipment to protect against fire. I'm just giving them the biggest possible benefit of the doubt for this theoretical scenario. But they have the incentive structure of the profit motive for the company pulling in the other direction, causing them to say that they couldn't take action until the state agreed to allow the company to pass on the cost of the upgrades to the citizens. Now, in this thought experiment, the people had no ill intentions and yet acted in a way that was harmful. And that's a perfectly logical explanation that takes both individual action and structural forces into account. 
Now, to jump to a conspiratorial conclusion about anyone intentionally starting the fire or allowing it to start, even if they manage to profit off of the disaster, requires or should require a much higher standard of proof. Thinking in structural terms doesn't preclude the possibility of nefarious individual actions or real conspiracies. It just recognizes that there is usually a simpler explanation for why things are the way they are, while avoiding falling into incorrect conspiratorial trains of logic by insisting that extraordinary claims be backed up by extraordinary evidence. That's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support. You can join them by signing up today. It would be greatly appreciated. You'll find that link in the show notes along with a link to join our Discord community where you can continue the discussion. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.